Thank you so much, Kramers. Uh, good even evening, Village Church. My name is Mitchell. Um, I'm one of the pastors of Village. How are you guys going tonight? Doing okay? Doing all right? Awesome. It's great to be here with you tonight. Uh, please do op uh, keep your Bibles open in front of you, uh, if you got them open in front of you. Um, or if you've got a device, uh, you can um, hit up BibleGateway.com uh, uh, if you want to bring up that passage. Uh, the translation we use here at Village Church is the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, if you want to find that online. Um, my number will be up on the screen. Uh, you feel, please feel free to text through any questions uh, or comments uh, or any pushback you may have of uh, the, the talk uh, throughout, um, throughout the night, and we'll have a chance at the end to look at it together. Uh, before we get going, though, why don't I pray? Uh, let's come before our Lord in prayer. Uh, let's ask him for, our, for, for his help in uh, hearing him speak to us tonight. Uh, so please do pray with me. Lord, as we are confronted by the authority of your son Jesus, let us not arc up our backs in prideful defiance to you. Uh, rather, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that are softened by your spirit, that we might receive your resurrection life today. Amen. Well, it's really no wonder, is it, why our culture is suspicious when it comes to power and authority. So from Harvey Weinstein and the Me Too movement to Cardinal Pell and the Church Two movement to Michael Jackson himself, we have Hollywood legends, religious leaders, pop stars. The world is starting to call them out for their abuse of power. But think about this a little closer to home in our country here in Australia, all the folklore legend stories that create our national identity, they all amount to us rebelling against someone bigger than us and getting whacked by them. So Ned Kelly, Anzac, even if we lost, we still stood up against power, against the baddies. That's in our blood. And there's something that's definitely good about this, but it also means when we think about authority, we tend to think about power. We think about the abuse of it, we think about violence, and then oppression, and we're left thinking that authority equals being squashed. Well, here's the tension. In today's passage, Jesus makes a really big deal about his authority. In fact, the reason why the religious leaders get so upset tonight is because in their view, Jesus thinks too much of himself. He thinks too much of himself. And it raises the question for us, what does Jesus plan to do with this authority? Like, how is it that he's going, how, how, how is he planning to flex his power in this world? Now, it's clear that Jesus' authority is the big idea in these chapters, not only because Jesus himself just straight up talks about it, but we can see this in the way that Matthew arranges his gospel. Now, Matthew is very much unlike me. Uh, he was a tax collector. In other words, he's a numbers man. Uh, he's the organized guy. He's a spreadsheets and PowerPoint colleague. And he has meticulously arranged his material. So I want you to notice this, how, um, how Matthew does this. Uh, an a good example is end of chapter 7. So if you just sort of flick up or scroll up to the end of chapter 7, Jesus, he's just finished his famous Sermon on the Mount, end of chapter 7. And at the very end of the chapter, 28, 29, we're told the crowds were astonished because, well, it's because he was teaching them, 
like one who had authority. And then what follows in chapter 8 and into chapter 9 is a series of quick stories where we see Jesus demonstrating this authority. So we see him calm a storm. He casts out demons. He heals and forgives a paralyzed man. With the climax being, Matthew writes himself into the story as he begins to follow Jesus for himself. So, what does that mean? It seems that Matthew wants to convince us that Jesus' authority is the very reason why we should follow him. Why? Well, Jesus is worth following, says Matthew, because he has the authority to actually do something about the brokenness of this world and the mess we find ourselves in. So here's what I want to explore today. We're going to be looking at, obviously, Jesus' authority. We're going to see his authority over disorder, the devil, sin. And in the end, we'll see how these stories give us some fairly good resources for following Jesus ourselves. All right, so Act 1, here's where we'll begin. Act 1, disorder. From chapter 8, verse 23, disorder. Jesus has universal authority over his creation. He created it. He rules it by the word of his mouth. He can command it as he sees fit. Um, this is maybe going to surprise you a bit, but I'm not much of a seafaring lad. All right, so I grew up in a uh, landlocked country. When Caroline first came out to visit, uh, we toured Brisbane by river on the, uh, the, 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 the kitty cat. Do you know that, that free little ferry service uh, that goes, goes along the Brisbane River? I got seasick <laughs> on the kitty cat. I got seasick. So it's not going to take much for me to be terrified at sea. But here we have a story of hardened, seasoned fishermen. And these rough and tough sailors find themselves in a situation where they are terrified. And so these fishermen turn to the preacher man for help. See that from verse 23. The disciples, they get into a boat with Jesus. Suddenly a violent storm whips up. Boat starts taking on water. Disciples are frantically bailing it out, no doubt looking for the exits, trying to grab the nearest life jackets. And oh, look, there's Jesus curled up like a cat on a cushion, asleep. Why isn't he afraid? Well, the answer he is the creator of the universe. Therefore, he has total authority over his creation. Verse 25, so the disciples came and woke him up, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to die. And he says to them, why are you afraid? Oh, you have little faith. And he gets up, rebukes the winds and the sea. There's great calm. And the men were amazed. They asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the sea obey him. One of my favorite activities is, uh, especially if I've been sort of, you know, cooped up at home or sitting at my desk too long, that's to walk down to my local dog park. Just hang around the fence, watch the doggies play. Jesus, in this story, rebukes the weather the same way a mum might rebuke her dog. No, Wilfred, stop it. And still the winds and the waves obey Jesus better than most designer dogs. It's a powerful display of Jesus' authority, isn't it? But what does it mean? What does it mean? Uh, well, there's a clue for us, and it's found in Jesus' response to his disciples. It's a bit odd, isn't it? His reply, 
in the midst of a life-threatening natural disaster, the disciples shake Jesus awake and he says to them, why are you afraid? You have little faith. Imagine you, um, I don't know if you're, if you're a city worker here, imagine tomorrow morning you're going to work, you step into an elevator and the cable snaps. You begin to plummet through the floor. I know it doesn't really work like that, but you, you know, go along with me. Cable snaps, you plummet through the floors. Your colleague starts screaming next to you. You turn to them and you say, what's gotten into you? It's an odd response. Well, here's what it doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that as followers of Jesus, we will never face uh, physical, mental, medical, emotional, financial storms if Jesus is with us. Some people teach that. You might hear some preachers say, if Jesus is in the boat, you'll never face the storms of life. But it can't mean that. The disciples literally follow Jesus into the storm. Nor does Jesus promise that he will deliver every follower from every danger. So even by the time Matthew's putting his gospel together, Christian leaders had already been martyred. The church was being driven out by persecution. Apostles were facing every kind of danger. So it can't mean that Jesus promises to rescue us from every storm. So if the promise isn't that followers of Jesus will never face storms in life, nor will we necessarily be delivered from every storm, then what does it mean? Well, the promise here is that even in the midst of the storm, we can have the confidence that Jesus is with us personally, that no matter what we're facing, he cares for us individually, and that ultimately nothing can happen that's beyond his control. Notice how we're told the disciples have little faith. That's not the same as no faith, is it? They have just enough trust in Jesus to know that if they cry out to him, he will respond. For some of us, that's all we need right now. To say, God, this is hard. I don't understand this, but I trust you're in control. Please help me. And if we pray that, the promise here is we can be confident that God is with us now, that he sees us, that he's near to you in the storm. But because we know the rest of the story of the gospel, we can also have the assurance that even if we don't experience deliverance in this lifetime, we can still trust Jesus to rescue us eternally. Why? Well, because he himself has walked the path of suffering, hasn't he? And through his suffering, he's opened the door to glory. We are on this same path from suffering to glory if we follow Jesus. Therefore, why are you afraid? Do not worry. God is in control. He has universal authority over his creation. Yes, it's true. Sometimes he will leave the storms unstilled for good and godly ends, but you can still trust him because he's directing all human history toward its glorious new creation. That's the first resource Matthew gives us for following Jesus. Jesus has universal authority over his creation. Nothing Nothing can happen in this life that's beyond his reach. Therefore, do not be afraid, is the promise. Well, act two then, the devil. Here's where things start getting a little bit spicier. 
Jesus has supreme authority over the spiritual world. No force can stand against him. God is on your side. Verse 28. When he'd come to the other side, to the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him as they came out of the tombs. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they shouted, What do you have to do with us, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? <clears throat> Pardon me. <clears throat> so after Jesus faces the storm, he lands in a Gentile region. Uh, he's greeted by two men who've been completely taken over by the devil. They are demon-possessed. Now, it's worth mentioning, I, 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 I don't think we need to expect this kind of hostile takeover in everyday life. In fact, the Old Testament has very little evidence of demonic activity in Israel before Jesus. And the New Testament letters say nothing about demon possession after Jesus returns to heaven. This type, that type of spiritual oppression only seemed to happen during a unique period in Israel's history. That is, when Jesus, the Messiah, shows up to do battle against sin and evil. In other words, as God begins to break into our world, all hell breaks loose. But here's the interesting thing. Here's the interesting thing. At the end of our last story, the storm, the disciples, they're full of curiosity, aren't they, about who Jesus is. And they ask, you know, what, like, what kind of man is this? Who, who is this? What's going on here? Well, I don't know if you caught it, but we actually get the answer to this question from a very unlikely source. From these demons. Verse 29, suddenly they shouted, What do you have to do with us, son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? Now, if I'm not mistaken, that's the first time anyone calls Jesus the son of God in Matthew's gospel so far. These spirits may be evil, but they've got insider knowledge, don't they? They recognize Jesus for who he is. He's God's son. And they also recognize that as strong as they may be, and they seem to be, that the arrival of God's son signals the beginning of the end for them. And I think that's a helpful way for us uh, thinking about spiritual warfare today. Um, I don't think we should expect to find a demon under every rock or sitting behind every mild inconvenience. Jesus has already triumphed over them at the cross, but the Bible does tell us to nevertheless keep a clear head because the devil still roams about like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. So keep close to Jesus. He is on our side. Verse 30, a long way off from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. If you drive us out, the demons beg, send us into the pigs. Go, he told them. So when they'd come out, they entered the pigs. The whole herd rushes down the steep bank into the sea, perish in the water. Then the men who tended them fled. They went into the city, reported everything, especially, especially what happened to those who were demon-possessed. At that, the whole town went out to meet Jesus. When they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. So Jesus got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Now, there are certainly some wild things happening here. Absolutely. 
But here's what I find the wildest part of this story. It's the response of the townspeople. When they catch wind of what Jesus has done, they confront him. And they don't say, hey, thank you so much for returning our men to us. We really miss them. No, when they confront Jesus, they beg him to leave town. Why? What's going on? Well, it seems they care more about pigs than people. Uh, now, at, at, at Village, we, we have a saying here, um, people over programs, meaning we care more about you as an individual and your own relationship with God uh, than we do about running razzle-dazzle uh, programs. Well, what if our slogan was actually people over pigs? I think most of you could sign off on that. Eh, you probably wouldn't know exactly what you're signing off to, but if, if people are, 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 are greater than programs, then certainly they're greater than pigs, right? Well, what if that slogan was actually people over property or people over possessions? Because that's what seems to be underneath the response of the townspeople. Being an agricultural society, they would have relied on the livestock as their means of living. And Jesus, it seems, was a threat to their bottom dollar. It seems that they would rather have these two men in bondage, in slavery, to Satan himself, than not have enough money in their pocket to go out and fund their next double-shot oat latte. I mean, could there even be a more relevant lesson in here for us today. See, that Jesus, listen, that Jesus has authority over the spiritual world means he's first and foremost interested in rescuing his people from the clutches of sin and evil. And as his followers, he calls us to join him in that mission. And that will cost us. That'll cost us financially. And so for some, for some, it may mean, as an example, it may mean not taking one of your overseas trips this year if it means helping to send one of our gospel partners overseas to carry the life-giving message of Jesus to an unreached people group. For others, it may actually mean never owning property in this life, just like Jesus who didn't have a place to lay his head because God might be calling you to the, the, the front lines of ministry. For others, maybe most of us, it may just mean living within our means so that we can support gospel ministry in our own hometown, in our own city. Because what we see here is that Jesus, he's willing to go to any length to rescue his people, no matter the cost. Right? Did you notice that? Jesus crosses the sea, saves these men, then gets back in his boat and goes home. Now, are we to think that Jesus faced the storm, had a showdown with the devil, and was opposed by an angry mob just to save two people. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And so that's the second resource Matthew gives us for following Jesus. Jesus has authority over the spiritual world, and by committing himself to rescuing his people from darkness, Jesus commits himself to you. He's on your side, therefore you can trust God is for you and not against you. Okay, Act 3, our final story. Act 3, sin. Jesus has authority 
over the root cause, over the root cause of all evil, suffering, sickness, and death, sin. He can actually do something, Jesus can actually do something about the brokenness of this world. Here's what I mean. As kids, we love to play in puddles when the temperature would drop below freezing. Now, the trick was, you see, to see whether or not the ice could support you, okay? Sometimes it would. Other times, your foot would go straight through. If you weren't careful, you'd cop a bootful of freezing water. Still other times, uh, you'd step out onto the ice, these icy puddles, and you wouldn't fall through, but you would send cracks heading out in every direction from your boot, fractures in the ice that would run straight to the edges, okay? And that image of, of ice fracturing out to every corner is something of how the Bible describes the impact of sin in the world. It's as if our human rebellion against God, starting with Adam and Eve, impacts the whole of creation right to the ends of the earth. And so the, the, the way I like to describe it, you know, especially when, when we're doing um, you know, kids' ministry over in the morning service, is to say something like, sin is the reason why everything sucks in this world. Sin is the reason why everything sucks in this world. And that's why Matthew could not be more excited to tell us this next story, 9 verse 2, just then. Some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a stretcher. And seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, have courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, at this, some of the scribes, the religious leaders, they're saying to themselves, well, he is blaspheming. Perceiving their thoughts, Jesus says, why are you thinking evil things in your hearts? What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or get up and walk. But so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he told the paralytic, get up, take your stretcher, go home. So he got up, he went home. When the crowd saw this, they were awestruck. And they gave glory to God who had given such authority to men. Now Jesus really is quite clever here. Because when he's confronted by the religious leaders, he takes their challenge and he puts it back on them. And he does it in the form of a riddle. In a, as a, and I'm wondering, how would you answer this riddle? Which is easier to say? What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? How'd you answer that? I think most of us would assume the harder thing is to ask this man to just sort of go to bed. No doctor or physiotherapist, no matter how skilled they may be, and we've got some skilled ones here in the room tonight, have the ability to just sort of heal like that. So surely it's easier to just say, well, your sins are forgiven. Uh, but then you start to think about it a bit more deeply. Um, if our sin is an offense against God, then only God himself can forgive us our sin. And if Jesus is claiming to forgive sin, does that mean Jesus thinks he's God? Yeah, that's precisely what it means. And it's why the religious leaders are so upset. They accuse Jesus of blaspheming, of insulting God, because Jesus is placing himself 
on the same level as God himself. Now think back, though, to the story just before when Jesus cast the demons out. Did anything back there stand out to you? Anything that they may have said to Jesus? Because they ask him a fairly weird question, don't they? Back in verse 29 of the previous chapter. What do you have to do with us, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? They're saying, in effect, we know who you are, but what are you doing here? What's going on? Well, the demons recognize there is a final day when they will be destroyed by the Son of God. They know it's coming. A day when Jesus will judge the living and the dead, and all sin, all evil will be destroyed forever for good. But Jesus seems to have arrived ahead of schedule. Why has he come to earth before the time? Well, Jesus gives us the answer, doesn't he? In 9 verse 6. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth, on the earth, to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, get up, take your stretcher, go home. So the question, why is Jesus here ahead of Judgment Day? The answer, to forgive human sin. Have courage, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. If Jesus had come only to destroy sin and evil in the world, humanity itself would be destroyed, you and me, because all of humanity is living under the curse of human sin. Jesus came, therefore, ahead of schedule, before the appointed time, precisely so that he could forgive us our sin, thus removing its curse, and saving us, saving humanity. This is the authority God gives to his son, the authority to forgive sins on the earth. In Jesus, a window of opportunity is opened right now where we can find forgiveness on this earth. So have courage. Your sins are forgiven. Now, when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, what he's actually doing is committing himself to going to the cross for us, isn't he? Have you thought about this? Uh, Wages of sin is death. Somebody has to pay the price. And because Jesus loves us so much, our sinless Savior paid this debt he did not owe so that our record might be forgiven, that we might walk free. Friends, that's what it looks like for Jesus to exercise his authority in the world. This is how Jesus flexes his power by laying down his life for his friends. Uh, That's the final, the greatest resource Matthew gives us. Jesus has authority over sin itself. Through his death, God forgave us our sin by nailing it to the cross. We receive this forgiveness and we put our trust, our faith into Jesus, therefore, follow him. And that's why Matthew finds this the perfect moment 
to write himself into the story. Verse 9, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. He says to him, follow me. Matthew got up and followed him. So as we wrap up tonight, there are two categories of followers in our story tonight. We have Matthew, a sinner, who takes his first initial step toward following Jesus. And the disciples, men whose faith is still small, but they're keen to work out what it looks like to keep following Jesus. So how might this story speak to two types of followers? Well, first thing, if you're a Matthew and you're worried you're not good enough for Jesus, perhaps, maybe you feel you've sinned one too many times, the darkness is just too overwhelming, your life's too much of a mess, God's promise to you is, hey, you're exactly the kind of person Jesus wants to meet. See, as Jesus is dining with Matthew and his friends, the religious leaders, they burst in and rebuke him for eating and drinking with sinners and tax collectors. But notice what Jesus says. Verse 12, it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Verse 13, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. So my friend, if you're here today, if you're feeling unwell, weighed down by life, struggling under the weight of your moral failings, feeling beat down, or even just pushed to the edges of society, then congratulations. You've just qualified yourself for fellowship with Jesus. Literally, the only criteria he's looking for in a disciple is an open heart. That's all it takes. Follow me, says Jesus. This is your window of opportunity. So get up. But if you're already following Jesus here tonight, what might it look like to keep growing, to become more like Jesus? I think the answer has something to do with how Jesus uses his power and authority in the world. Um, that is, do you think God is interested in making you, his disciple, more powerful? Uh, the answer is yes, but it's the power of the cross at work in our lives that we imitate. Okay? So, Exercising godly authority in the world means being willing to disadvantage ourselves for the sake of the community. I mean, it's no surprise that right after Jesus invites Matthew to follow him, Matthew invites all of his friends to come share a banquet meal with Jesus. There's just something different about him that Matthew was keen to share with others. But for Jesus, this was social suicide. Because in verse 11, the religious leaders, the social elite of their day, they rebuke Jesus for hanging out with the losers. I mean, why, why would Jesus choose the side of the weak, the vulnerable, the marginalized? Well, the answer, so that he could swing wide the heavenly gate and bring them home. See, our passage opened today with Jesus having no place to lay his head. He's asleep in a boat in the middle of a storm. In other words, Jesus was homeless. But our story ends with Jesus enjoying a banquet dinner with his new friends in their home. It's a foretaste of the banquet we will enjoy with Jesus in our new heavenly home on the last day, what the Bible calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. After Jesus puts away all sin, suffering, evil, and death for good, we are living in the in-between. And as followers of Jesus, we are called to invite as many people as we possibly can to this wedding feast. And we do this by inviting them to follow Jesus, even at great cost to ourselves. Because a window of opportunity is open where we can find forgiveness on this earth 
So follow Jesus while there's still time for the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Let's pray. Lord, only you, the creator of the heavens and the earth, could come up with a solution to the problem of human sin. And instead of squashing us because of our sin, you squashed yourself on the cross. Jesus, thank you for taking on the storm of God's wrath, for disarming the rulers and authorities of this world, for being pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. By your stripes we're healed. May we find healing and forgiveness as we follow you. Amen. Amen. I'm going to invite the band back up. Uh, we're going to sing a final song together, and then I will come up and answer uh, any questions that may have come through. Um, so village, why don't you stand, and we'll sing together.